welcome to Regenerative Reform, the podcast that's intended to explore our place in nature's kingdom and discover new ways to connect to self, surroundings, and society. I'm your host, Jeremy Tackett. And yesterday, when talking about what in the world I was going to talk about or how to put a topic around a box for myself to fit into this morning, my wife, partner, Karen, said, you know, I need to do a podcast too for my project, my new business, Weird Arts House, and I want to interview you and use you as my guest. And I was like, oh, I can stop thinking about a topic now. This is great. So today, Karen is joining me. Hi. And she's going to be taking over and asking me the questions. So I figured this is a great opportunity for us to get to know each other in a new and different way and for you to get to know my wife, Karen Tackett, in a new way as well. Here we go. Well, hello, everyone. Greetings and gratitude to everyone who is turning in and listening, who is tuning in. Uh, This is Karen Tackett here. How are you today? It is a beautiful, beautiful Monday morning out there. I've already been out on the farm, waking up goats and chickens and rabbits and quail and walking dogs since about five in the morning. So uh, this is a very lovely break. Uh, It's been a little while since the Weird Arts House has done a podcast because there's just been so much happening as we are in our first year of uh, making things happen. It's a really intense uh, time when you're at the very beginning of a project or an endeavor. And I think that's a great segue into introducing my guest for this uh, episode's theme, which is uncovering originals. And really what the essence of this episode's theme is about is getting to the heart and the core of the creative process. And that really applies to every aspect of life that you could possibly imagine, <laughs> whether it's breathing, <laughs> uh, figuring out how to use your 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 fine motor skills, um, whether it's creating a, a work of art, whether it is designing a menu or opening a store or engineering or building or creating infrastructures, or regeneration and agriculture, um, which is sort of the focus. I'm sure we're going to derail and go into all kinds of different directions of uh, our, our, our episode today. I am very proud and honored to be able to introduce Jeremy Tackett, my husband, my best friend, uh, my business partner, uh, my creative partner in so many ways, um, the father to our absolutely (laughs) sacred and wondrous daughter, Raven Sue. Uh, And in the uh, many years that we have been together now, since we were married in 2005. We've actually been together since late 2004. Um, 
We have really uh, taken on a lot of the dreams and goals and aspirations and musings that were really just seeds of conversation when we first met and uh, began dating when we lived in Astoria, New York and worked in the heart of Manhattan and Jeremy lived in Hell's Kitchen. Um, so welcome, Jeremy. Yep. <laughs> Don't worry, you'll get a chance to talk. Um, it's, it's, it's not... It's not not awkward having Jeremy be a guest on this podcast because we normally just do this over coffee in the morning and just talk and get to the heart of all of our issues. And now it's sort of being framed in this um, more of a formal structure. So I'm going to try to get over myself and just let uh, let things happen organically. But I sort of want to give you an intro uh, about where I met Jeremy, which is what I do with all my guests, is sort of like let you know where I came into um, knowing and um, and working with uh, the person I'm interviewing. So Jeremy and I met in 2004, like I said, in Manhattan. Um, he was working as a bartender and a also a model in New York City, and I was working as a performer former um, on and off Broadway and a voiceover actress um, and also writing uh, music and theater uh, here and there. Uh, when we started dating, uh, our conversations very quickly turned to where we came from and we both come from very rural backgrounds. Um, of course, I'm a Boxford native, as you all know, and I often say that I was raised by these woods uh, because I spent so many hours, just countless hours, um, finding myself in, in, in nature. And um, I believe that, uh, not to speak for Jeremy, we, we came from similar um, similar paths in that respect. Um, and he was uh, born in Alaska and raised in Colorado. Uh, when we met each other in New York City, I think we both uh, had been there for a while and had one foot in and one foot out. So we started dreaming of uh, the lives that we would love to create uh, and co-create and what we might be able to do with one another um, once we moved on from our uh, accomplishing our dreams in New York City. We eventually uh, married and we had a beautiful daughter named Raven Sue. Um, and because we were still continuing our careers in the entertainment industry, we took our whole entire family, uh, daughter, dogs, <laughs> Dodge, Caravan, <laughs> Dodge Caravan, on the road and went on tour uh, with the Broadway musical Rent and uh, the Broadway musical Hair. And we went back and forth from being on the road and living in New York City for the first three and a half or four years of Raven's life. Uh, and then we decided we wanted to... Um, start to think about where we were going to plant our roots and actualize the dreams that we had actualized, uh, that we had formed with one another in New York City. And maybe now is a great time to hand it over to Jeremy because I am so curious to find, I've talked about this so many times to other people, but I'd love to hear your perspective from that, that, that gestational state of when we started talking about 
what we, the path that we were going to carve out for ourselves in New York City. Um, but we can go back and also talk about more of where you came from before that. But um, whatever order feels correct to you. For what? <laughs> so. When we met each other in New York City, I know you've done a lot of sharing on your own podcast about the, your childhood and, and the time that you spent in Colorado. So I sort of want to start in the middle and talk about the creative process for you from New York City and actualizing those dreams of agriculture, cultivating community, uh, merging arts and agriculture, the whole shebang, like sort of, could you share that experience from, from then maybe to now? And I can't promise I won't interject. <laughs> Go ahead. From then to now, mm -hmm. from New York City to, to here mm -hmm. and, and what, uh, What kind of uh, lit those flames or fueled those fires? Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of that comes from uh, inspiration of groups of bohemian artists. Um, and hearing stories within the city um, of people starting uh, little communities, uh, creating art, repurposing leftover materials. Um, and in a city of Manhattan where there's so much, there was there was a lot of that. Oh, yeah. And the the green space um, is is uh, conquered by, you know, the, the concrete hard space in Manhattan. Um, so the, the beauty of, of natural life is, is really potent there, I, I would say. Um, and I guess there's another way of looking at this, just not enough. Um, but what is there is, is, is really rich. And in those cracks and crevices, in those trees, in those missing concrete squares between the sidewalk and the street, there'd be a tree and there'd be a little bit of litter and there'd be an opportunity on what we could do uh, to connect with the earth or find out what was there. And what was there is the same stuff that is there now. But when you form a, a, a different sort of awareness where you want to get to know nature in a new way where you think it might have gosh where it might have something to offer hmm. and, and, and you you witness that um, you witness that through people displaying like authenticity and uh, habits that are connected to nature. So the cool thing about Manhattan is that there's so many rich cultures intertwined, interwoven, 
uh, that have made a really rich fabric. And that, that melting pot is what uh, attracted me there in yes. the first place. It was it was going to be that with that rich diversity or I was going to go over to France or to Australia and I was going <laughs> to, you know, uh, be in just a totally different culture. Um, being young and looking to... Uh, to grow and expand my experience and my my perspective mm -hmm. but in manhattan you can connect with almost any country and culture oh, yeah. within hours mm -hmm. and you can do it on your feet you can walk there for the most part um so that's that that microcosm has a has an opportunity to be expressed in the macrocosm in an efficient way and mm -hmm. And the connection to life has an opportunity to be cherished in that heavy urban way, uh, maybe more so than in in the rural, forested, um, wild environment where maybe some people are so removed um, due to either a conquering perspective or due to just uh, being hammered down by life, which we can all experience at any point in time yeah in any location but in 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 new york um i was i was reading works and and, and books by um getting introduced to philosophers artists writers um urban shamans like um Martin Pinchbeck and and then artists like Alex Gray and uh, Stephen Gaskin um, and when trying to pay attention I started seeing that I had things in common with some of these uh, habits that some of these philosophers artists shamans musicians community builders um they had some of the same curiosities and habits you know wanting to get closer to nature wanting to have an, an enriching um collaborative experience um wanting to form original art opinion and curiosity and take that curiosity you know to um up, up in prayer or into meditation or into the forest um, and those were far out ideas for me um, and all of these ideas were, were seeds that were that were planted or nurtured uh, during my time in Manhattan more or less these were discoveries that I made um, you know, world world discoveries that I made um, in Manhattan after backpacking Europe and um, before starting our extended world travels together and before developing a, an adult relationship with uh, nature in a living way um, where I wanted to start growing things, you know, so like house plants started coming in and um you know after house plants would become you know outdoor plants and herbs and fruits and vegetables and soon after that um 
due to my fascination and um, rich history with cannabis. Um, came that, um, what is it? <laughs> It'll come back to me later. <laughs> but so many, um, there's so many opportunities in agriculture. You know, it's, um, there's so many different plants you can grow. There's so many different animals you can raise. And I was starting to discover that with just starting cuttings or house plants or spider plants in, in our kitchens or in our closets or getting to the point of finally working with cannabis uh, through obtaining uh, medical marijuana cards or medical marijuana uh, caregiver licenses. Um, and to get to know all the different ways you could grow something and all the different varieties and finding out about biodynamics through a cannabis magazine that you would like buy on the street. You know, I'd buy these magazines on the street at, uh, in a similar table on a height on a corner <laughs> in uh, Midtown where I used to buy comic books on a folding table. The village Voice. <laughs> you know, and and. Um, and backstage. <laughs> so these, but these papers, these are papers. I, 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 I walked blocks and I bought papers and I gave somebody money and I picked up these papers. And sometimes, whether it was in comic books by Marvel um, or in High Times magazine, so some awesome sacred information came came across. Mm. And things that would not only fuel me into my future, but help reinforce some guiding principles that I was already given in my past, from my parents, from uh, the popular Christian religion, from their parents in their rural environments, and the life web started appearing before my eyes. And I, I began acknowledging connections. Mm. Yeah. Speaking of connections I want uh, where you are right now I think is a nice safe place to interject and uh, project some of my own experience into into yours I just wanted to um, say at around this time in about I would say 2004 2005 in New York City um, in 2004 I was actually working the show Rent, and I had a friend named Dean, who I had done a European tour of Greece, the musical with, and he played Eugene and was freaking hilarious. God, did he used to break me up on stage every night. Anyways, we remained close friends uh, when we came back from Europe, and one, one day... Um, he called me up and, and uh, suggested his apartment, which was an illegal apartment in in the basement of a Hell's Kitchen, a very old Hell's Kitchen building. And uh, he invited me over so that we could hold a small rehearsal in his apartment. Uh, Jeremy lived uh, across the hall in the other illegal apartment. Um, 
at the basement of this Hell's Kitchen building. And uh, he said, you know, my, my buddy Jeremy lives across the hall and you two are like two peas in a pod. You guys have got to meet each other. And... Um, and at the time, we were both uh, dating other people, uh, and whether knowingly or unknowingly, we were at the tail end of dating those other people. And uh, that's when Jeremy and I met, and um, months later, uh, when the time arose and was perfect for us to uh, actually get to know each other a little better and begin dating, one of the things that intrigued me the most about Jeremy was his human connection and human cultivation of a relationship with a gentleman named Pops. And uh, Pops was uh, a, uh, probably would be considered an illegal tenant in the building. Uh, he, he was a lovely older black man who was homeless and the owner of that building allowed him to live in the boiler room of the building in exchange for keeping the stoop clean and safe for those who came in and some other uh, small tasks. Pops uh, was very protective of Jeremy. Pops and Jeremy had an established relationship far before I ever uh, came into the picture. If I wanted to get in good with Jeremy, I, I had better, I had to get past Pops. <laughs> so uh, when I, um, when I, when I started uh, staying over at Jeremy's apartment, I started getting to know Pops better and he referred to himself as a gangster, he said he was. And uh, he basically considered himself sort of the keeper or the the head of his particular terrain in Hell's Kitchen, a certain amount of territory. And to be honest, I wouldn't really doubt it. He had um, various weapons stashed uh, in several different locations throughout the boiler room. He had, you know, his big jug of, was it whiskey was his? Was his? Or gin or whatever. Whiskey or gin or whatever. And, um, and there were times when Jeremy actually spent holidays uh, that he was away from home sharing, uh, what, a can of, can of beans with Pops? <laughs> yeah, yeah, pork and beans and warm gin and juice. In the boiler room. So, uh, so here's the thing. I, I fell in love with Pops. He's just amazing. And he had this amazing black cane that he used to carry. He had a couple of them, actually. So Jeremy and I, after we got married... Um, in uh, in October of 2005, I uh, we both secured work on the Southeast Asian tour of Rent, the the musical. So we were going to be gone for about four and a half, five months uh, touring uh, Southeast Asia. Within that time, while we were out on the road, we'd check in every once in a while with uh, folks back in New York City and our family, of course, and uh, we had heard from. Dean or uh, uh, there were one or two other friends that still lived in that apartment complex that Pops had disappeared. He had left and um, one of one of the tenants had seen him on his way out with a sack of clothes over his shoulder and he had said he was going to do the laundry, I think is what he said. But he never came back uh, for a very long time. A couple of months later, while we were still in Southeast Asia, Jeremy checked in with some folks at the apartment and found out that one of the one of his friends who also lived in the building was home in Chicago where Pops was from uh, visiting family and when he went to the bus station to return to New York City who did he bump into there but Pops 
and Pops was there trying to get home. Now, Pops came from, he had shared uh, a very, a sort of a tragic upbringing in a very uh, tough area of Chicago, and he had been jailed for some time because he had uh, murdered the gentleman who raped his sister. And he was apparently on a journey back from New York City to Chicago to try to uh, find the remaining family that he had there. And wouldn't you know that he bumped into this one of our friends from the apartment and he was actually asking for some help getting back to New York City. He was ready. He was done with Chicago. And um, Jeremy's friend in the apartment complex said, you know, I would if I had if I had the extra cash. But unfortunately, he, he couldn't take Pops back to New York City with him. So we sort of, you know, we were happy to hear that Pops was okay. We had come around to accepting that when we came back from Southeast Asia, we more than likely wouldn't be seeing him. And uh, and lo and behold, I'm uh, when we got back from this tour uh, in early 2006, Jeremy moved out of that Hell's Kitchen apartment and moved into my apartment in Astoria. And one day, not too long after Jeremy moved, Dean, the friend who introduced us, heard somebody coming down the basement. Um, and Dean, as of yet, did not have a new neighbor. And so he was wondering who it was. And when he left his apartment and looked up the stairs, who did he see coming down but Pops? And Pops was, you know, sort of weathered as Moses coming down from the mountain and looked different, looked older, and was very disoriented, and his senility had increased. And when he looked at Dean, he sort of focused his eyes, and then he said, Jeremy! And Dean laughed, and he said, No, no, Pops, it's Dean! And uh, and they reconciled, and, and to go backwards a little bit, before Pops's return, when we came back from Southeast Asia, I found Pops's cane in the boiler room, and I thought that he might not be returning, and I wondered if it was something that I could maybe keep as a, as a keepsake of Pops. But something told me that it wasn't mine to take, and I'm so thrilled that the cane was there waiting for him when he came back, because to be honest, he had quite a temper, and I... <laughs> Yeah. I would not want to have been held accountable for making off with his cane <laughs> or any of his belongings for that reason, for that matter. But one of the more touching and 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 heart striking experiences for us was when we actually returned to the apartment and Pops was there in the hallway and we were so excited to see him. But we hadn't considered that maybe he had been through a lot and, a, and, and it had taken his, a toll on his mentality. And, and so we sort of rushed forward to give him, you know, like a hug. We used to hug him. We used to, you know, spend a lot of time with him. And when we rushed forward, he sort of like leapt back and, and, and did this sort of defensive pose um, because he didn't. He didn't recognize us. And then finally we stopped and said, oh my gosh, Pops, it's us. It's." And then when we said Jeremy, he remembered. And then you could tell there was a great amount of embarrassment that he didn't remember. And, and, um, and it, was, it was at once beautiful and heartbreaking. And uh, it, it's probably one of the experiences that solidified for me 
that I was with the absolute right person and right partner beyond what our um, agricultural dreams and desires might have been. Now, to flash forward a little bit, when I say that we came back from Southeast Asia in 2006, um, my personal career in the, the the following months of 2006 on Broadway was very up and down. And with that kind of a, a situation as an artist trying to survive and thrive, um, there's a lot of emotion that goes into that. So um, I decided later on that year that maybe Jeremy deserved a little bit of a break from me with his friends <laughs> um, in this first year of marriage that was so like tumultuous with with my career suddenly I was doing a lot then I was not then I was doing a lot then I was not so um, I gifted him um, a trip to Amsterdam with two of his friends and uh, a, a stay on a houseboat in the canal and then um, also passes to be judges in the uh, Cannabis Cup finals. Um, now, this is when Jeremy was, we got married when you were what, 22? Yeah. 22. So you were, you were tw just turned 23 and you were in Amsterdam with your friends and you were enjoying these, the, the judging, um, the can the Cannabis Cup finals in Amsterdam. And the reason I bring this up is because that was around the point you were in your story when you started talking about how your passion for the cultivation and the exploration of the cannabis plant as a medicinal remedy uh, for yourself and for others led to um, your familiarity and study and sort of um, absorption of Stephen Gaskin, Ina May Gaskin, and Alex Gray's works, philosophies, and practices. Um, and so, is is that yeah, yeah. is that safe to say? Okay. Uh, now I'll I'll let you take it away. So I think from there, um, in talking about, uh, maybe you could speak a little bit more about, um, about for those who don't, aren't aware of Alex Gray or Stephen Gaskin or, or any of that, maybe just a touch of that backstory and how that sort of helped us shape what we considered was the right way for us and our family, as unique as it is for this particular time period. Yeah, yeah. So, I think um, one of the last things I had said is making connections. Mm -hmm. And, you know, thinking back, I can uh, recall, I'm going to get a few of these names wrong, because I don't have the books right in front of me, but they'll be close. Um, so these connections, you hear about these things throughout your life, and maybe for whatever reason, you don't give them that much time when you first hear about them or you don't have the time but you know you file it and it's it's something that's worthwhile um, to give energy to later you know and that was that was my experience with um, hearing tool for the first time by my best friend Joey and there was moments when I could like hear I didn't have the ear for it. Um, I didn't have the perspective or mind for it to be able to appreciate um, the complexities, nuances, and uh, content that they had that the band had to offer. Um, 
but the illustrations on the album, I was like, oh, that's, those are really neat. And the music videos, <laughs> oh, that was really neat. And part of the sound, I was like, oh, that's really neat. But then I was like, Joe, he's just really loud. I can't, I can't, it is. I can't hear it, man. <laughs> Nowadays, I can hear it and I can get my like inner rage on. And, I can uh, never get into try, try, try to try to grind out, but it's um, these things kind of come and go throughout throughout life. We always, you know, we spiral around back to similar opportunities or challenges uh, more often than not. So that's that's the case with Tool and. Um, you know, reading Across America by Peter Jennings, I believe. Uh, Walk Across Peter, America. Walk Across America. Everyone should read it. So that gentleman walked the Appalachian Trail with his dog, met all sorts of communities, got to know himself, got to know nature. These are a lot of the books that I was reading, you know, books like that, When the Legends Die by Hal Borland, um, the book books of uh, woodcraft and wildcrafting, um, you know, Tom Brown's tracking guides. Uh, yes. You know, so I was in into nature um in a in a way of you know being always these esoteric these inner spiritual struggles of really trying to orienteer myself in the wilderness trying to find myself where i belong in the land uh almost before how to integrate in society and i think that was hmm a higher priority for me for uh, a while to where it drove my curiosity of like I just I want to get to know these lands these ecosystems these these flowers these grasses these mushrooms these these trees these these ungulate species these horns these antlers these minerals these deposits these cycles the rain the dust the minerals so much nature has to give and these connections are everywhere within nature. So when you read that walk across America, he stops in Somerville, Tennessee, where the land that would become the farm, or was the farm then, founded by Stephen and Ina Mae Gaskin, who were like, uh, you know, the celebrity or elder judges that year at the Cannabis Cup, along with Alex Gray, who did the art for Tool, who also lived in Manhattan, who also shared the plane ride with me, <laughs> with his wife, Allison Gray, and their daughter, Zena. And at that point, I was behind them boarding in uh, like JFK or LaGuardia, whatever darn airline airport we were at. And at that point, I was, I wasn't where we are, where they are now, where we are, whatever. But they were they were an inspiration because they were an artist couple that you could tell were a team. And their daughter was like a, a, a preteen at that time. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that seems like something really cool and hip. Mm -hmm. And their museum. Like, to have that and, and, yeah, their chapel of sacred mirrors, their art. They were doing full moon drum circles at that time. Mm -hmm. And all kinds of awesome experiential art. Um, by the way, a new exhibit opened uh, in Las Vegas last week with Meow Wolf. Uh, interbeing uh, like walk space where there's rooms of a three-dimensional uh, Alex Gray painting Stop come it. to I life. I did not know that. Yeah, that just, oh, that, that, just, that just happened. I didn't want a reason to want to go to Las Vegas. So, yeah. Well, <laughs> oh, man. They're, 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 
they're closer to us. Um, their home base in New York, right? And we are in Las they're Vegas. They're going to have to do one in Boston. Yeah, that that would so, be, that's the place. But all of these connections continue to pop up, and they're they're reinforced um, by I, I guess having the simple courage to to uh, to meet some of these opportunities. You know, and sometimes that's starting conversations with artists or growers or elders or uh, community members, um, lobbyists, uh, lawmakers, politicians. When you start seeing that there's these few connections, you start imagining these are only a couple of the knots in the tapestry. These are only a couple of the threads in the large woven web that is connecting all of life. And if I can find a few of these, there's probably endless trillions amount. And if and if I can find those and I can build on them, then I can I can develop more connections and I can grow new relationships with artists through space and time and all of those relationships, curiosities, gathering skills, knowledge, um, opinions, expanding perspective, consciousness, and awareness of our environment can help give me a deeper understanding of, of self. And and more importantly, who I want my best self to be mm-hmm. and what I want my best self to accomplish. Mm-hmm. And it excites me that I feel that uh, nature, agriculture, hemp, cannabis, animal husbandry, holistic land management, um, those are all my my portals, my gateways, my bridge to nature and to society and to self. And that's what all of these connections are so to. Awesome. So let me ask a question. What is it that led you to Manhattan? Um, so the end of high school, I was toying around with two kind of uh, empty ideas um, to be a, a preacher slash Baptist missionary or to be a, a model. And I had and <laughs> I and I had abandoned the Baptist missionary <laughs> rather quickly upon like entering entering the world and exploring just what it was gonna take for me to gather the funds to uh, go backpack Europe. Right. And when <laughs> right. backpacking Europe, I I thought, um, I thought, well, I could do this in, in Paris or in Australia, you know? And I was trying to imagine a life where I just had some explorations, you know, did mm. some like... Uh, day trips backpacking, mm-hmm. stayed fit, and tried to, you know, 
model clothes on a beach or in a square. <laughs> and, and I was hoping that those opportunities were just going to kind of be given to me after entering a few big buildings. Yeah, sure. Don't we and, all and getting, that? and getting some awkward pictures <laughs> with with or without the six pack. Right, right. And and there was always so I pursued that for a little while. And um And yes, I do have that portfolio. Yeah, 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 yeah. So so but but I decided not to do Paris or Sydney because it would break my mom's heart. And I already, you probably did that a couple times by, <laughs> by, by deciding not to be a Baptist missionary and kind of walking away from the faith altogether. Um, so ch- chose Manhattan to stay in the country mm-hmm. and to pursue, a, you know, a somewhat, you know, hobby career, half-ass career, and either, you know, print modeling or, you know, commercial acting. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is funny, because when I met you and I asked you if you were, like, an actor or trying to be an actor, or even, like, and you were just like, nope, I remember that. And I was like, really? Because I don't know many people that come to New York to be a bartender. So, like, it's, I, so it's, you know, it's interesting, having struggled with... Um, Having struggled with my place in society and struggling with, you know, spirit, religion, um, alcohol, you know, just figuring out who I was, um, while I had taken acting classes, while I had been to auditions, while I had uh, a portfolio and had gone on like... Uh, you know, go and seize for representation and had, you know, done the different uh, stock cards and had just sure. oh, too many stupid experiences. Um, Especially back then, it was all print. It was through, all. Throughout all of it, it was all like you're not only are you going to be a door to door salesman. Yeah, for yourself. But it's going to be, not only is it going to be a shit product, you're going to be the <laughs> shit product. Oh my God. And it's like, I'm I'm selling just this, I'm, I'm trying to cultivate this weird thing to sell to justify some 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 uh some money some success some uh external yeah validation or um i don't i don't know it it can be tricky i think it's hard so that seemed really that seemed really empty Mm -hmm. and because any time that that would seem empty and i don't know if that would happen after rejection Mm -hmm. i didn't keep a journal of like this person said well, it looks like you still got your baby fat or come back in a few months or, you know, let us know when you find your retainer. The rejection um, is no joke. So I don't, I don't know. But either way, when I told you that, it was like, no, I'm, I'm pursuing picking up all of the, you know, waiting ser- server and bartending shifts I can find. And um, I'm, I'm drinking and... You know, exploring, exploring or, you know, in in danger of practicing, you know, just these like hedonistic behaviors within within the restaurant industry in general. You work really hard and you work sometimes really hard and you really put some thought, never some thought and energy into Mm -hmm. um, like in high end restaurants. It's really it's a lot of fun. But 
after getting done of earning, you know, hundreds of dollars on a Friday night, and it's almost midnight, mm-hmm. fuck, you, your adrenaline's going. It's like you just got done with the show. You gotta keep going. And you gotta keep going. Mm-hmm. And the the danger of New York City is not only can you keep going, <laughs> but you can find a, a, a party to go with you. On every block. <laughs> no matter what time of day it is and no oh, matter, no matter what. Miss it. So, so what's, what's cool about that is you know, I, I experienced that and I had a lot of fun um, and I'm and I'm grateful for that, you know, and if people ask nowadays if I if I do some some, you know, recreation time or if I have a lot of time with friends or a lot of downtime and I can't tell you enough or explain it enough. Like <laughs> I have had downtime <laughs> for on like a decade. That's what our twenty. Like I'm, for. I'm solid. <laughs> no, it's um, I'm really trying to, you know, do do the work and and put the put the treasures that I found, you know, to to full activation uh, while I can because that was that was so much of the point of that journey. Oh, so absolutely. so much of that point of staying up until two God. six a.m. <laughs> 10 a.m., yeah. you know, and having these long conversations in mm-hmm. far-out countries. On and, rooftops. And roof, on rooftops <laughs> in weird places, on beaches, with with strangers, with close ones, with long-time friends of in loved ones. back alleys. <laughs> where, wherever these things happened, they, they were enriching. And mm-hmm. they were, you know, Karen talks about pops, and it brings up, like the variety of elders and the and the relationships that I'm so happy to have formed in my lifetime mm. and these ones that were you know outside the box with either um, you know people outside of the um, homeless you know mental facility um, Oh my gosh, or, I remember that. Or yeah, yeah, he was a he was a composer. You had a couple of friends in that line. Yeah, I had a few I had a few friends like that. That you would like they knew you. They were like, Jeremy, and you'd walk by and be like, What's going on? You know, and the, catch up with them. The cool thing about them is that we could cut through the bullshit instantly. Mm-hmm. It was about do you have a cigarette? And now let's go to the to the ninth level of hell, either in philosophy or society, right. real quick, just for a minute. Just talk about it. And sometimes, like, over death, sometimes over loss of mental facilities or job, sometimes drool- drooling. And these, these were the things that were like while being so selfish would bring me down from like my ninth level of heaven Hmm. and bring me that little bit of balance right right so with with regenerative reform with regenerative agriculture my mission is to get closer to human nature my nature and nature as a whole 
and to build on all of those small, tiny doses and connections that I formed in the strangest of places throughout this experience. Mm -hmm. And while we were in those places, let's be clear, we weren't walking around being like, where's the organic, all natural, whole foods store so we can get our geese <laughs> and our quinoa. And it, 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 this has been like a journey, you know? Uh, I, there were times, you know, even though maybe the standard of living was higher, uh, with what we were doing for a living. And I mean, for both of us, because, you know, when I said, I don't know many people that moved to New York to be a bartender, because you can be a bartender anywhere. The truth is you could be an actor anywhere as well. Regionally, often they don't pay, which is the bummer, which is why people end up going to New York or going to these like sort of meccas of the entertainment industry where it's like, I'm going to make it. I'm going to support my family with what I love to do. We... You know, we were going to the to the store while we were dreaming of having these farms and and taking this this path. But we were buying whatever food was the cheapest in the store in bulk so that we could feed ourselves. And 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 there was this wonderful and beautiful sort of pivot that I believe that happened because everything starts with thought. Every like when, when, now that we're this really the point of this podcast is about the creative process it starts with thought thoughts are things thoughts are energy and energy is vibration and and light and and force and it's it's uh when you when you can focus your thoughts and your energies and you add will and emotion um that's when you make things manifest that's how things are created and that could be considered a very thoroughly magical process it can also be considered a very thoroughly scientific process it's measurable so when we were in that apartment in Astoria in New York City and we were cultivating these ideas of oh my gosh you know what would be better than this two-bedroom roach-infested apartment building that we are paying ridiculous amounts of money for and rent which is probably only half of what they charge now for that apartment there we could be co-creating a farmscape somewhere where all of our passions and all of our what makes us feel fulfilled can be actualized. And at the time, we used to call it Tackettown. <laughs> and we used to say, we're going we're gonna to build Tackettown. And I'd walk around and be like, ding, 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 going down to Tackettown and create a little, you know, a little tagline for us and everything. And our friends would be in on this. We'd be sitting there, we'd be, you know, they'd have their guitars, we'd be jamming, we'd be playing some music. Um, and then we'd, we'd all be talking about this, this Tackettown. You know, it's going to be this huge farm and it's going to be a biodynamic farm because, um, you know, that's when uh, biodynamics, we started talking about that um, as, a, as, a, as a possible practice of agriculture and started uh, researching Rudolf Steiner as a, a possible form of education for our daughter because at this time, or this was around the time that I was actually pregnant with Raven in 2006. And so um, we wanted to start thinking about what we wanted for her and we knew that, you know, we loved, Manhattan and loved the city but as I would look around that that cityscape and and see and be more affected by the things
things that were around me. I became um, over the, the sensory. It was overload for me. Um, I wanted to go back to Boxford, to be honest, uh, to to have our baby. Um, and I think there it was even easier for us to sort of imagine and dream and conjure up these these ideas of having this this biodynamic farm that we could cult. We could even you know possibly share in community with others um, and share our chores and grow our own food and have the animals integrated to the farm organism and then in the middle of it all there would be this big huge barn slash stage slash recording studio that we were going to have for festivals um, you know, like in the, in the, maybe in the, I was a little bit influenced by Levon Helms's, um, you know, midnight, uh, midnight rambles. And, um, and I, I, we definitely wanted also to plant ourselves in the middle of a place where there might be a lot of, um, colleges nearby and, uh, people who wanted to create an album or, or make a, a, a work of art that maybe was too expensive for them to, uh, even consider pursuing. And we would offer it to them on this gorgeous farmscape where they could create their album or create their work of art and take their time at a, at a prorated cost in exchange for them getting their hands dirty and getting their feet in the soil and working the land. Arts and, and agriculture. Arts and agriculture because it's all living art. And in that way, and, and maybe it takes them months to complete their project. Maybe, their, maybe their artistic project is paralleling the growth of the crops. And at the time that the crops are getting ready to be harvested, the the art is ready to be harvested and and the album is finished we would talk about these things and we still do (laughs) on a daily basis but it was around uh you know we we spent some years take hitting the road um i want to say we weren't as as uh as raw um in our road endeavors as those who who trick out uh school buses and and put the wood-burning stoves in and and do the diesel thing and and go that way but we sure did take our dogs and our daughter in our dodge caravan and follow the tour buses um and and travel uh the better part of north america for three and a half years um and i think that that experience of getting to know and getting to experience and live and move through so many diverse parts of this country. Um, there are so, the whole country is a melting pot, you know, I mean, Manhattan is the, is the microcosm of the macrocosm, definitely. Um, and, and, uh, for sure. And, and, and we got to, you know, take pick up practices and beliefs that we that we experienced and agreed with and let go of ones that were no longer of use to us and I think it was somewhere around 2011 that we finally decided it was time to um, settle down a little bit more and start moving around so much and we decided um, with the help of a very serendipitous forward from Jeremy's mom, Karen, uh, to, to settle those roots in Colorado. What had happened was we were very interested in, um, in having our daughter pursue a Waldorf education 
um, which was developed by Rudolf Steiner along with what is known today as biodynamic agriculture, which is something that Jeremy had been passionate about for a long time. So uh, I think I'll hand over now and ask you to sort of pick up where we left off about your mom sending us this article. Like we were just in the middle of trying to figure out where are we going to send her? Waldorf school in these parts is super expensive as far as private schools go. Like what, what are our options? And then all of a sudden, poof, there's your mom's article. I mean, not your mom's article, but yeah. I mean, an article from your mom. Well, they were looking up um, uh, fire and the name of the fire prompted the school search to come up mm -hmm. for whatever reason. And we had been talking in a in a unfamiliar way, in a hopeful way to develop a, a relationship with Waldorf and biodynamics. We've been talking about this, like Karen had said, for, for years. We'd ramble on about things, and I think people would just kind of roll their eyes sometimes. Yeah. And be like, okay. They yeah. might still. Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, but um, that happened, and the school hadn't opened yet. They didn't have all of their you know, um, all of their paperwork and all of their, you know, licenses or permits in order. Yeah, it was just but, a homeschooling but they were, But they were on their way. They had started and they could see the pathway forward and they could communicate that to others that within the next couple of years, there would be a licensed by the state, you know, charter, uh, Waldorf Charter School. Um, and that it was going to be... Um, you know, something uh, raw and uh, from the ground up and that, you know, that was out there for people to join in, to connect. I guess you could have just read that and like criticized it or not read it at all. But we read it and we thought, oh, well, we should we should move to Colorado. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> like they're just like... Uh, Cannabis was about to be fully legalized and hemp was legalized and there were biodynamic farms throughout the state mm -hmm. and big opportunities. And before one of the tours, I had uh, turned down a scholarship to like Oaksterdam University for cannabis cultivation. Mm -hmm. And that... That would have set me on, on a track for a, a much different life, um, but it would have been a pretty, uh, it would have been a track for success in the cannabis field in one of the leading counties of uh, the country. And that didn't happen. So moving to Colorado immediately brought up this, like, it stoked all of those fires of Waldorf education for our daughter back to where I grew up but the potential to not only work in a field of agriculture but also of hemp cannabis and biodynamics and that potential seemed pretty great mm -hmm. um, and it did turn out to be and it yeah it turned out to be um, you know it's it's uh, it, maybe it's unique um, 
but before we left Colorado, I found a job uh, online smoking meat in Black Forest, and Which I got awesome. And I, and I got that job right away. Before that some good meat. Before we moved back this last time, I got another job at a farm making donuts again. Before I managed the 200-acre farm, um, we've oh, wait. we've we've in each and every opportunity. We've had the simple courage, whenever we've taken the opportunity, to um, to try and fail. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, people ask, I, I, I have a lot more knowledge than I had, you know, 15 years ago when it comes to living agriculture, cannabis, holistic systems, nature as a whole, and especially myself. Um, but I have that mainly due to passion and failure. I've taken a few workshops and classes. Um, and you've been to Steiner College. And and yes, I've been to Rudolph Steiner College and taken some intensives there. But the major uh, teachers in my life are passion and failure. And I, I would also add that that the student-teacher dynamic, no matter whether or not the student or teacher are human or or not um i think there's always a fine balance it's, it's hard to call just one thing a student or one person a teacher in every aspect of my life when i have uh been assigned the role of a teacher um i have always learned so much from those i have been teaching yeah uh so i think there's always that positive negative balance you know and by positive and negative i don't mean good and bad just you know those the, the those dynamics um but one thing i wanted to, to also talk about um i'm a big i wanted to share this story because I, I i really try to pay attention to serendipitous situations i'm not a big believer in coincidence i i as people come to define that word um i definitely see purpose behind most things um in life or everything um and when we moved to colorado it was a huge uh culture shock for me personally it was a place that jeremy had grown up in um and although i had always dreamed of living in a more midwestern or western uh place and had lived in you know los angeles for a certain amount of time this was a whole other world and it is it had taken me many years um to understand that if you're a creative artist and you create your own material um, you can be a successful artist no matter where you are. You don't have to be in New York. You don't have to be in L.A. You don't have to be in one of these hubs because if, if the goal is just to be fulfilled by the art itself and, and the creation and the release of the art itself, you can do it from anywhere. And especially now, if you're trying to find some sort of success on a larger scale with your art, you can also do that from anywhere because of some of our technological advances. Um, but in any case, for what it's worth, a couple of months after we moved to Colorado and we were living with, you know, uh, Jeremy's parents for several months, I started to feel like I was losing sight of myself. I didn't know how to exist in a world that didn't center around 
being that one percent of an actor that remains working um, in a in a very competitive field. I didn't know what I was going to do. Uh, I didn't know if all of the artistic creativeness that I had was behind me. Um, and I was depressed. I was experiencing some depression. So one day we were. Uh, this was before we had made uh, connections or friends or had involved ourselves. Um, with uh, any of the groups that we that we eventually found, uh, and one day Jeremy's brother James was visiting him, and we were uh, going to go to a local park so that Raven could play, um, and that so Jeremy and James could go mountain biking. And I just started having a little bit of an emotional episode as silently as I possibly possibly could in the car on the way to the park. <laughs> and uh, James, I think if James was listening right now. <laughs> he remembers that car ride, and he's like. Maybe it wasn't silent. If that's silent, I feel for you, brother. It really was silent for me. But um, (laughs) but I remember saying something to the effect of, if I feel this same way about myself and our lives by the end of this year, we are turning around and going right back to New York City because I don't know what we're doing. And I'm not kidding you. I, I'm so glad to have Jeremy here to, 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 to verify this. We show up to this park, and we referenced before this group that we had read about because of this article that Jeremy's mother gave us about this group that was really trying to get this Waldorf school to turn in from a ho- homeschooling co-op into a charter school. This is the park I went to, like, every week in high school, and that inspired the tattoo on my arm for the scenic view, and, like... Ugh. This is uh, this is the very all kinds this, of things coming yeah. coming together, um, coming full circle. So we're in this park. Jeremy and James are off bike riding. Raven's playing intently on the swings, and I'm crying. <laughs> and so um, a couple of cars show up, and uh, then some more cars show up, and a whole tribe of mothers and children just start playing on the playground. And I'm thinking to myself, where? Where, where am I? These kids are supposed to be in school. I'm homeschooling my child. Like, what, what's, what gives? And I, I kept my distance. I'm a pretty sociable person, but I was feeling, well, I had just been sobbing for the better part of an hour, so I wanted to sort of take time to myself, and I put myself on the other side of the park. But slowly, these kids started coming up to me and raving, and they wanted to know about us, and they wanted to play with us, and they were fun, and they were uplifting my soul. And then finally, one of the mothers came over and said, well, you'd know our kids maybe you should (laughs) get to know some of us so we introduced ourselves and lo and behold again i'm gonna say lo and behold throughout this entire podcast which should probably end in the near future there you go um they were the mothers of the group that were trying to establish this charter school um and i couldn't believe it i went back i uh, to the house i rejoiced i celebrated i joined the natural parenting group we joined forces with the waldorf homeschooling group raven um suddenly had a class full of like-minded children whose parents wanted to pursue waldorf education for their kids in a classroom setting um a waldorf classroom setting each week um she suddenly was a part of a forestry school where once a week we'd also hike with this a similar group of kids that were also involved in the Waldorf Initiative. 
we were creating speeches. Suddenly we were approaching city council and we were a part of it. We, we became um, founding family members of the Mountain Song Community School where um, the uh, founder of the school who later became the principal um, asked for 10 family founding families that could um, she would guarantee uh, the that their kids would uh, that our kids would um, have admission into the school if we could do 100 hours each of community service work in helping to uh, make this school what it is. In that process, Jeremy became the uh, designer of the agricultural courses um, and then the teacher of the agricultural courses for kindergarten through eight. One of my favorite memories of that whole entire experience was that we got to be a part of the uh, choice of where to put the school. So. <laughs> so, uh, Jeremy is touring these locations, you know, with the board and the, and the founding, uh, families of the school. And he's looking at, we found this, you know, location the, that was perfect for the actual school, but didn't have a lot of land for the agricultural course or for the farm, the biodynamic farm that, um, you know, that the founder and we all wanted to have uh, on the pre premises. So there was a parking lot. <laughs> and um, Jeremy, in his, you know, in his bold but very calm uh, manner, just sort of scanned the property and said, all right, well, I'm going to need that parking lot. And uh, the founder said, uh, all right, well, where's everybody going to park? And basically, Jeremy just sort of gently let them know that that kind of wasn't his... <laughs> concern um, and that there was plenty of street parking all around you know the, the, the community but he was going to need that that parking lot to transform it into the farm for the kids and especially for year three because in Waldorf school year three is like an entirely almost entirely agricultural year so um, so do you want to speak to maybe uh, we have about 10 minutes left so let's talk I think that's a perfect amount of time to sort of bring us up to the present point where we could talk about how you turned a parking lot into a farm in under a year and also somehow got approval for a farm to table um, situation for the children uh, in the agricultural course and with the, the lunch program. So the, the planning of the curriculum was the beginning of reaching out to uh, city planners, county commissioners, Department of Health uh, planning boards, and figuring out uh, town, county ordinances regarding urban agriculture, especially livestock. Um, mm -hmm. So the parking lot was about an acre in and of itself, but part of that needed to remain kindergarten playground, so that needed to stay fully playground, not be farm. Um, and the parking lot itself was crushed gravel, and um, <laughs> that crushed gravel was about nine inches deep, so it wasn't asphalt. Um, but there was need of a lot of uh, elbow grease and remediation, and um, yeah, that that was um, that was such an enriching opportunity um, because 
it was uh, it needed a big transformation. And after putting together the curriculum for kindergarten through eighth grade, they liked it. They didn't need it feel like it needed to be tweaked much. Um, it would just be reinforced by the, you know, the core, the academic core curriculum. Um, so we'd coordinate with the other teachers to make sure that there was like cross-pollination and um, that nature backed up a lot of the, whether it be poetry, math, you know, physics, chemistry, uh, language, history, that there would be uh, agricultural, you know, accommodation. Um, sounds blissful actually so they loved yeah so they loved the curriculum and then they then they asked if I was going to apply and I hadn't planned on applying I was planning on transitioning out of like smoking meat uh further into like the cannabis industry to be honest mm -hmm. um and I said I'd be honored to apply this sounds like a great idea and I applied and the highest paid largest position at the time was a part-time position for the whole agriculture department. Mm -hmm. um, so it was like 20 hours a week. And I just heard I got the job and no one was really above me, was going to tell me what to do. And <laughs> Which is perfect for Jeremy. <laughs> so, so, yeah. So I found out a lot about myself. So, but I didn't pay attention to the 20 hours and I started working like 40, 60 hours a week. Yeah, you did. And the budget that I got the first year was somewhat small, but I had a nonprofit ID number behind me in my wallet. And I had the charisma of a door to door salesman or a failed wannabe model. Um, and I had this level of this, you know, hip guy who uh, also digs cannabis. So I'd roll into hydroponic grow stores and leave with like hundreds or a thousand dollars worth of gear for children to and help donations and donations to help children grow. You know, so I'd have like like multiple hydroponic grow shops that are mainly just associated with helping out cannabis growers be responsible for connecting hundreds of children to growing, you know, whether it be, you know, kale, lettuce, whether it be indoor under lights or outdoor in straw bales, it was awesome. So having been uh, excited and prompted by this big canvas that could be transformed, I just began working with a pickaxe and bearing through to the topsoil that was underneath the parking lot and I began getting donations of used substrates and growing media and grass clippings and leaves and manure and compost scraps I began picking up uh, free sheds and wood off the alleyways and getting donations and picking up old tools from people and getting uh, plants that people didn't want as far as their volunteers or extra seeds or digging things up. What happened was I revealed my passion and that my passion knew no boundaries. And with that, the community, 
mm-hmm. met me where I was. Yes. They, people crossed the streets in droves to either ask what I was doing or to, to contribute. People wanted to work. Mm-hmm. That galvanized in me that everyone can connect with self through nature because nature in and of itself is bigger than any one of us. It was truly a field of dreams, if you build it, they will come scenario. And I will say that that sort of has been our experience with the uh, each following endeavor. Um, uh, I, I think that the fact that so many like-minded community members would seriously just find themselves on the property and ask, how can I become a part of this? How can I help? That's something that transcended into the following project. I mean, that, uh, what ended up happening was, and whether it wasn't, it wasn't by design on our part, it was just sort of by circumstance. After a couple of years of, of, uh, helping to get, uh, the Waldorf school, um, off of its feet and and becoming um, a very positive uh, experience for our daughter from I, her kindergarten her kindergarten homeschool experience through second grade with her teacher. Um, one of the Waldorf things is that the the teacher tends to stay with the class from first grade through either fifth or eighth grade and then cycle back down, and uh, and we enjoyed that uh, that aspect of of Waldorf for our child and found it great for through second grade, but um, external uh, factors and challenges and circumstances caused us to uproot and um, not go too far away from Colorado Springs. We went just a couple miles down the re- uh, road to Manitou Springs, um, where we were introduced uh, to a a gentleman on a property there who, uh, it used to be, I think there were um, grandfathered, there were laws grandfathered into that particular property because it used to be a, a goat farm a long time ago. And so how did that I think that opportunity presented itself through the Mountain Song experience because yeah. one of the students at Mountain Song had a mom who, or or I forget, could you could you maybe? Yeah, so we had a student whose mother was uh, big in community leadership and formation in Manitou Springs, who was getting on, working to get on the community council, city council, um, and. Part of that was increasing food security and urban agriculture. Um, and she wanted to use me as a reference or as a consult, having seen and experienced uh, the fruits of my labor and the community's labor at the school farm. She asked if I was interested in possibly starting something with the landowner herself and uh, another partner. So that was the first time I started walking other pieces of land and um, seeing myself as a a full-time live-in, could-be farmer. I went over and walked the land with the landowner that had rich history, but the land was kind of um, forgotten and abused in places, vagrants and, you know, people ditching school and homeless putting trash out there. Yeah. Um, 
but I walked the land and I loved it. The potential is always, you know, unreal with forgotten land. But I said, you know, there'd be conditions. We'd have to move on to the property, um, you know, and we'd have to continue to have open communication and to have some form of uh, security for the family. But uh, if we can achieve these agreements, then yeah, let's move. Let's move forward and form Flying Pig Farm. And we sure did. And we yeah, we did that, and we moved on the property, and we started uh, another community adventure that to this day has evolved into a, a classroom sponsored by the um, uh, local school district, mm-hmm, the Manitou Public School System. And, and it's all, it's been a community growing space. It's been a workshop space. It employs a couple people now. The landowner has gotten, has benefited from it. The community continues to benefit from it. It's and to add to the connectivity of it all, it. those who, those who operate and run that now, um, actually are people who came at, from the Mountain Song School community. Like that, it's not something that one project was started and all ties were cut, and then we went to another place and another project was started, and then it, like all of these things became interwoven. Uh, um, the there's a gentleman named Barack who became a teacher at Mountain Song School and started uh, and his class was in their third year which was an agricultural year so Barack started spending extra time on our porch um, on Thursdays uh, having a meeting of the minds with uh, Jeremy and they would have very enriching um, discussion I mean one time uh, our cat went into labor and they even helped <laughs> helped with that you never knew what was going to happen but what ended up happening in fact was that when we when we started the flying pig initiative and project um one of the cabins on that property opened and people who worked at mountain song moved over and um started becoming a part of that initiative and then what ended up happening from there this is a funny tie-in to the arts um, I had been working as the head of the theater department for the Colorado Springs Conservatory at the time and um, I was actually bumming a little bit because that was a very very consuming all-consuming job so our dream that we had started uh, you know in that apartment in in, in Astoria it was happening, but I wasn't as active a part of it as I had initially dreamed because I was consumed still by a career in the arts, but this this time um, as a teacher uh, for, you know, ages preschool through college. So I could participate as far as I would help with community outreach. I would organize events on the Facebook page. I would host uh, the, the weekly, uh, actually bi-weekly volunteer work parties where people from the community and I'm telling you people would show up and different people every time to help with whatever needed to be done on the farm at the time and then we would have a potluck feast and often a jam session at the end so what happened um 
at in the year 2015 is I had finished a, an album that meant a lot to me. Actually, I hadn't finished it, but I was nearing finishing an album that meant a lot to me. Um, and I wanted a venue to perform a concert of, of just this album. And I was using amazing musicians who all had other side projects of their own at the time. And they could only commit. They all, The only date that they had free to play a concert with me was one date at the end of June. And you know that I could not find one venue, one concert venue in town that had that date available for us to be able to premiere this album that meant a lot to me. It was called Slide, A Tale of Mental Illness. And after all hearing no from absolutely every venue that I contacted in town, I finally went to the property owner at Flying Pig Farms and I said, excuse me, could I please just have a festival? Could I have a concert in festival form on this property all of the musicians are only available on this date and none of the venues are available could i please have a concert on this party on this property on this date and he said absolutely so from there the flying pig fest formed and what eventually happened that idea formed in february in april of of 2015 and in june of 2015 we wound up having a festival that included vendors and craftspeople from all over Manitou and Colorado Springs, probably a dozen crafters and vendors. We had um, top bar beekeeping demonstrations. Uh, we had farm tours. I had about eight or nine very incredible local bands um, and musicians, Grant Sabin, Xanthi Alexis, um, people from out of town. And then, uh, of course, my band um, also got to perform that night. And it turned out we had quite a few hundred people come to that festival um and what what happened at that festival was one of the bands that i had booked um was a, a man uh named bob tudor whose wife cat was at the festival and enjoying uh, his band crystal bliss and um she walked the land and wound up having one of those another one of those incredible creative mind moments with Jeremy and she discussed another project yet another project that was happening just across the way just across the way on another property in Manitou Springs and let's let's um this is this is such a full I don't want to like put so much pressure on being like we have to wrap up in five minutes but we're going to end this podcast by talking about um that transition um, because it's the it's the the last transition before our transition back to Boxford. So, what happened on that day that Cat Tudor came to the festival and had that walk with you on the property? What what seeds were planted there? You know, I don't um, I don't remember so much that day as far as an in depth conversation, other than that I did what I was came accustomed to do, which was showing people around a current agriculture project. And not to toot my own horn, but most of the time, there would be a pretty spectacular response from a lot of the people. Mm -hmm. it, it connected with them in a very, um, in, in, in a deep, enriching way. Mm -hmm. Um, immediately 
it was pretty spectacular mm -hmm. and people who possibly share similar talents or curiosities as mine in in what they value or in their passion creativity mm -hmm. um in their vision have have shared something with me um Um, I totally got him off track because I thought for a second that we weren't recording, but I think we are. We are. I'm sorry, technology. You know, I think I know what I'm doing. Okay, I'm sorry I cut you off. Well, it's that we're <laughs> approaching an hour and a half as well. L don't look at the timer. Time okay. is nothing. Time is a man-made construct. <laughs> well, I got so much of this man-made construct left for today. I know. <laughs> So, no, but in all seriousness, we, we exchanged information and we agreed to talk about another project later on. Later on, at some point, I hadn't been to her spa down the street yet. And, and we had, she showed me around her spa and we sat in this outdoor on a balcony cedar tub with, with some mineral spring water in the open sunshine and a beautiful Colorado day, probably in the summertime. And um, beginning of summertime. And we just swam around like two little tadpoles <laughs> um, and just kind of brainstormed, just kind of vomited out loud a whole bunch of fun ideas being like, you know, I think, it, you know, kind of agro tourism connecting to a spa, arts, hotels or, you know, Airbnbs and agriculture. Um, so we we talked about all the different ideas of you know exploring agrotourism in Manitou together, and that was the end of that conversation. And it was just a wild brainstorming time with someone with the resources of you know you know waving a wand and being like go play yes so and that was the difference between the two projects so what happened was is like within weeks oh this lady was also cat tutor became so a, a large supporter in helping me do like cosmic agriculture so reading steiner with the company music in a really cool environment and expanding other other people's awareness to what uh, agriculture can be which we will also be doing at the weird art so House. so weeks later she lets me know that she's bought some land and would I walk it like weeks later and I go over and walk <laughs> land and it's and it's literally from the top of the property that we live in flying pig you can see the top of the other property across um, whatever El Paso Boulevard or whatever main main, mm -hmm. main yeah El Paso Boulevard right there so all I had to do is walk across the street and go look at these this acreage with you know these four estates, and to start talking about what this could be, and what that became was um, after a couple different renditions was Smokebrush Farm, and that became the first biodynamic Demeter certified farm in the uh, southeast region of Colorado, 
And which is no small feat. And, and that was a collaboration with friends and loved ones and community members gathered from Mountain Song mm-hmm. to Flying Pig mm-hmm. to to Smoke Brush yep. and everything in between. Mm-hmm. And that mad magic is still being made there. People are growing and taking care of animals that we had acquired as far back in lineage, all the way back to Mountain Song and Flying Pig, goats, mm-hmm. uh, pig. Um, rabbits. Rabbits. So The rabbit lineage has actually carried all the way to Boxford, Massachusetts. <laughs> and, and it started with people who did the Top Bar Beehive at the Flying Pig Festival. Mm-hmm. Um, even though we're not actively nurturing each and one of those connections that we formed along the way, those connections are continuing to be nurtured through other living beings and organisms and systems, relationships, practices, crafts, mm-hmm. and fields throughout space and time. Absolutely. I know that when Karen is trudging through the snow all by her lonesome, doing a farmer carry of 30-odd pounds, that she's not alone. There are people all over the world battling the elements to take care of the ones and things that they love and cherish the most. Mm-hmm. To spread the the joy and the values that have become so dear to us through our connection to Earth mm-hmm. and the kingdom of nature. Absolutely. With that, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for tuning in to Regenerative Reform, and I hope you enjoy hearing this not only on this podcast, but also on the Weird Arts House, and that you continue to support us both. Karen, thank you. Thank you so much. Anything else you need to say? No, I I think you wrapped it up beautifully. (laughs) We'll talk to you later. Bye.